Mark, episode yes. eight. Isn't eight like a baker's dozen? <laughs> I meant like a small baker. <laughs> right? We're trying to downsize, right? Anyway, I was never good at math. That's okay. That's all right. Take, take it it's to fine. the Supreme Court. They'll they'll uh, decide it for you. It, yes. <laughs> so there's this Jewish doctor who has a patient come in, and the do- the patient's dying, and he's dying of COVID, and the doctor quickly finds out that this guy has tattoos all over his body of Nazi symbols um, and uh, swastikas mm. and such. And what do you do? What do I do if I was a doctor? Um, this sounds uh, like a uh, something I might find in one of my Philosophy 101 textbooks, which I love these kind of ethical uh, dilemmas. Mm. Now, I'm guessing this is a yeah. true story that you're posing to me. Yes, it, and and it happened in real life in San Francisco about a week and a half ago. Um, what would I do? And it's funny, what would I do? What would you I, do? I, I'm just thinking about this. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's it's you know once the real life is there, once you're actually that doctor in that situation, where you know you're a Jewish doctor. I'm guessing uh, in the details, there's there's more to it, right? There's a, a nurse who's uh, maybe African-American, maybe some other, and a mix of people that are there to to save your life. And Right, um, there's an Asian lung specialist, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, it's multi, it's very diverse team there, yeah. And so what is, so the, 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 the patient says, save me, I'm dying, and the doctor and says. And it says, please save me. It's like, he seriously wanted to live. I mean, he was like, I, 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 he was he was on the edge. I, I, what's the term? Something like intubation was needed. Right. There's all these technical terms, but uh. what what do I do? I, I mean, you know, in my philosophical state of mind, imagining that I could do this, I'd want to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. But probably mm-hmm. that's like off the table. Obviously, when you're trying to treat someone and they're dying and they come into the ER, but it seems like a a a, a, a moment for some reflection that's merely an ethereal thought what would i actually do if i was the doctor i would i think i would treat the the patient um what did the doctor do in this situation the doctor treated the patient uh and and felt uh that it was a hard thing for them to do they they felt a pushback within themselves but they did treat the patient yeah yeah, yeah. I, I I've been thinking myself about it, Eric, and I would err on the side of compassion. But I, if there was wiggle room time, like f- half hour before the surgery or whatever it is, the intubation, I would want to s- explore. Not I don't know if it's so much like if I find out this, I would not, <laughs> I would not help the patient. But just I would want to reach out and try to understand the level of hatred like would this would this patient want me to leave the country would they want to kill me would they want to act actively be involved in killing me and my family or something like that and i think i would try to say here i am i'm a generous person you don't like jews that's fine that's your thing 
but I'm making a statement. I am present with you. You can hate me, um, but we're in this together. We're working on something together. And I just wanted to insert that into this guy's awareness. Right. Yeah. It makes me kind of think about the potential in 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 some people's worlds that hate is is uh you know in theory one thing but when it comes to the reality like you need other people then hate certainly in that er does not hold weight right i mean that they mm. i need i need you doctor and 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 whoever that doctor is he's jewish it doesn't matter at all is he an intellectual elite or i mean i'm not i'm not you know jumping to conclusions about who this patient or what what he thinks about people that study and then get degrees in order to save other people uh using their expertise all of that goes out the door so right that's right. interesting it goes out the door and that makes what you just said makes me think that there is that which I would do, and there's that which I would want to do, right? I have those two different aspects in my personality. And what I would want to do, I think, is sort of what we just discussed. That That's what I would want to do. What I would actually do, it's hard to say. I think if I felt, I part of me is very tribal. Mm. And uh, if I felt in danger, or I felt like my kids were in danger, it's not clear what I would do. Mm. Right. But as the doctor, you know, these doctors, these people on the front lines are certainly being pushed to, you know, their limits. I have no doubt, you know, having to see uh, uh, suffering every day and saving people and saving people who are, you know, who are there and, 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 and suffering and wanting to help them. And so you have someone come in who clearly who's clearly wearing on their chest that I don't like your kind. And then they're saying, wait, save me. Right. Hmm. Yeah. What to do. What, what to do. And there's, as you pointed out uh, a few minutes ago, there's not a lot of time for the doctor to have philosophical discussions with such patients as I did a long time ago. I was living in Seattle, took my car in uh, to get serviced and the guy was negotiating with me about the price of fixing the engine. And he said, uh, I think I was concerned about a price. He said, don't worry, I'm not going to Jew you. Mm. And I said, uh, excuse me, I'm a Jew and I'm actually a generous person, or at least I'd like to think I am. We had a long discussion. Um, and that was important to me. I don't think I changed his mind. I think he still would make comments like that and believed in things like that. But it was important for me to make a statement, not be so passive as like some kind of victim and let those words just roll over me. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm. It's interesting to think about those two scenarios also where someone's life is on the line. And in that case where you do have that moment too say and you can take your business elsewhere but in that moment you want to make things clear and did you did you take his business i don't remember <laughs> doesn't matter you made your point i i could make something up how about that <laughs> okay um he ended up um painting flowers and jewish symbols on the hippie van oh. which it was and we ended up 
forming a rock and roll band to rival the Grateful Dead. Not. So we are we're here with Dr. Richard Bell. The book is Stolen: Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Amazing documenting on your part. I mean, I can't imagine this, the 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 saga that this has been to make this book, bring this book into the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, history takes a long time, right? Some people call it uh, a slow history. A colleague, a colleague of mine calls it right to try and do right by these uh, by these folks uh, takes takes a long time. Um, so uh, this is the true story, obviously, of uh, five free boys kidnapped into slavery uh, from Philadelphia in 1825, and um, by a gang of human traffickers that specialize in doing this work. One of many dozens of similar gangs doing this awful work, targeting free people, black people, especially children. Uh, between the revolution and the civil war as a way to profit off um, their freedom by turning them into illegally seized um, southern slaves and selling them a great profit in you know Alabama, Mississippi, um, Louisiana, etc. And I stumbled into this story probably nine or ten years ago uh, now. And I was working on a previous book about suicide in American history between the revolution and the civil war. I'm clearly drawn to these darker topics. Um, and as I came across the alleged suicide of a 60-year-old um, white woman in rural Delaware in 1829, four years after the events in Stolen, um, I began to figure out that while she was in jail in Delaware facing uh, death penalty charges for maybe murdering three people, that of the previous 20 years, she'd done equally terrible um, uh, things, that she'd been the co-leader of one of these many different gangs of um, kidnappers and enslavers. Her name is Patty Cannon, which was at the time not a name known to me, but as you guys know from the book, uh, becomes an increasingly prominent figure uh, in the book itself. And over 20 years as the co-leader of this uh, gang with other members of her family, uh, she and her gang had stolen away from freedom dozens, maybe hundreds of uh, free black people, many of them children, and not just from Philadelphia, but from Maryland, from Delaware, from anywhere within 100 miles of their base, their safe houses out on the Eastern Shore. And I didn't know or expect to find anything like that. I had no idea 10 years ago that the kidnapping of free African-Americans uh, into slavery from within the United States, from free soil like Philadelphia, um, was common. I knew Solomon Northup's story in 12 Years a Slave, but I'd assumed that that was incredibly rare, exceptional. Uh, and as you guys know, I've been able to document, you know, so many cases in the course of telling this one particular case, uh, which make it very clear that this happened all the time. And if you open, you know, newspapers in the right place at the right time, you're going to find so many missing persons ads, missing children's ads placed there by members of the free black community in big cities like Philadelphia, Boston, um, you know, uh, everywhere, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, New York, even Baltimore, which is a slave state with a free black population. So I wrote this book to educate myself about this because I didn't know it. And then to share those findings with as many people as possible. And here we are nine years later. Wow. So one of my questions is, uh, since the publication of the book, which I believe was a year ago about? That's right. 2019. Uh, what sorts of reactions have you been getting from a um, black folks who maybe had ancestors who've gone through this sort of thing, B, boring white middle-class people, and C, maybe white supremacists. I'm just wondering if, if there's any kind of reaction 
I mean, my reaction is what a profound story this book needs. Not it should be, but it needs to be taught in schools. So, uh, yeah, we could say a few things that, you know, if um, if white supremacists are reading my book, they've not told me that. Uh, let's just say <laughs> that. And the title may be off-putting for people of that persuasion, because um, I think the, the title telegraphs what you're going to get here, right? The title does a lot of work letting you know what the book is uh, about here. And, you know, I think everyone who's come across this story is having, I think, in general, similar reactions to mine, which is, wow, I didn't know this was this was quite as widespread and awful as it clearly, clearly was. As Mark points out, there's a lot of documentation uh, in and around this uh, book in support of this um, reconstruction. Um, I think, you know, in general, African-American people have a much keener sense uh, than someone like me, and I'm a white male, pretty overprivileged dude, um, about um, the various expressions of white supremacy and uh, slavery in American history uh, that have affected African-American communities over generations. So I'm not sure it's as, um, um, it's as uh, revelatory to some readers as it is uh, to others, but this is certainly not a story that is in the historical mainstream um, at this point, despite the overwhelming uh, evidence, right? This is actually the first, I think, book-length reconstruction of a case like this outside of the Solomon Northup 12 Years a Slave um, story, but it won't be the last. There's so much evidence uh, for this. And I called this phenomenon of the kidnapping and trafficking of people, uh, free black African-Americans into slavery, the reverse underground railroad. That That's term right. may catch on, it may not, um, but it's a reminder that the scale of this thing was comparable to the scale of the very different underground railroad to freedom. That's right. And and kudos because I've talked about this your book to my kids and you know obviously they say my younger son 11-year-old said what well, what is the reverse underground railroad and I said well it was you know and you've uh, thank you for educating me I, I I couldn't believe that these were boys. You know I when I read it I kept having to remind myself these are children that are being take, that are being that are being taken from their city where they live and taken in you know in a what was the word a coffle is that the word that's uh, right all the way to alabama i mean i it's just astounding uh trauma and and that they managed to get back and and um i i, I it, it leaves me i don't have it's so it's so shocking to me and as you're saying maybe to other people it's not as shocking um, but I, I guess it's just like no matter I can uh, the more I dive into the, the American history as as awful as I know as um, as the slave uh, history is I can always be shocked even deeper and that's what your book did even though I know how terrible it is and I've I've read quite a lot and experienced and talked with people a lot your book definitely was even more of a of a reminder of of what a what a utterly uh, terror what a terrible time in in our in the history and and that it continues i mean you know frankly that's all i i, I feel like this I, I feel like this this is not long ago what you're what you're reporting on is not long ago that 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 that's right i mean the rest the i mean I, I leave readers to find their own resonances with with today but some of the ones that jump out to me for instance are what was happening on our southwestern border over the last three years when actually a government agency not uh, individual 
um, uh, citizens acting privately, but a government agency was separating, uh, you know, parents and children from uh, each other and making it impossible to to reconnect. I'm also, you know, struck by one of the things which is very apparent to me uh, in Stolen um, is the fragility of black freedom on mm. free soil, mm. right? That you can be legally free, but still be terrorized in various ways. Um, and of course, I think, you know, uh, many African-American communities today around the country would recognize um, uh, threats to their freedom and way of life taking different expression, but it's the same uh, root, um, you know, culture of, for lack of a better word, white supremacy, which uh, persists uh, in America over a long span. And it was interesting, Eric, to hear you talk there um, about, you, you know, your response to the fact that these are kids. And what you said immediately before that, which was seemingly disconnected, was that you have a son, right? I think you have two sons, in fact, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, I, have I have two daughters, right? Yeah. Uh, right? The youngest child in Stolen of the five who is kidnapped is eight years old. <laughs> the oldest is 15. Uh, all of us who are parents and all of us who are not parents can imagine what those bonds are like and what it means to be severed from your children, your most precious um, uh, relations, um, without any hope of getting them back. Right. Well, I, th I think that really right. speaks to one of the many powers of your narrative, and that is the ability for people to empathize with the story, which you were just saying. And that is, for me, it's difficult for me to imagine myself as a slave, because ethically and morally, you can sort of think, kidnapping on the one hand and people who are s slaves and they're taken legally back in the 1800s from their parents it's really there's a, an equivalence there and yet your story is something i can relate to maybe on a deeper level because i can imagine being a free guy in a city where i've walked being philadelphia so this it's more it's it's this your story i guess is more accessible to me and i could imagine i was one of those 10 year olds or or 15 year olds and let, let me just build on that mark it's a, it's a great observation and i want to say that anti-slavery activists uh, both black and white who were trying to get more who back in the pre-civil war period were trying to get more and more uh, white middle-class people in the north to give a damn about southern slavery's persistence south of pennsylvania um, leveraged stories like this one where northerners where free northerners had been had their freedom stolen out from under them by kidnappers as a way to remind northern comfortable middle-class evangelical uh, readers for instance that nowhere is safe in america from slavery that slavery is like a cancer which gets in every cell of the united states and if you think you're distant from slavery because you live in massachusetts uh, or, or something like that, then um, uh, then why is there a slave catcher in your town next week? Why was there a kidnapper here uh, last week? Nowhere is safe from the tentacles of American slavery. And these stories of parents and children, which are all true, uh, are also turned into uh, very you know useful fodder in the anti-slavery campaign to get northern white parents off their couches into an anti-slavery. Uh, meeting to build a mass movement, a moral majority against slavery, which is an uphill struggle because most Northerners really do not think twice uh, about Southern slavery. They know it's there. They probably, probably agree it's not great, 
but are they going to get off the couches and do anything, right? The amount of apathy that has to be overcome to fight American uh, slavery outside the black community, which has been fighting it from day one, um, is, is extraordinary. And so stories like this can help move the needle. I thought it was really interesting that you point out that some s Southerners uh, w who would try to say, look, we're fighting against these kidnappers in order to like try to make the South look better. <laughs> you know like that we can slice things in that way that like oh look we're 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 about justice we want to get these these kidnappers put put in jail because they're doing something terrible and meanwhile they're you know legal slave trade no problem <laughs> like that is boy that is you know that's some math for you or whatever <laughs> just like that's some a calculus that is some moral calculus absolutely eric yeah right so both sides the anti-slavery campaign which i just referenced but also what i would call a pro pro-slavery boosters people who are defenders of the way of life as the euphemism goes uh, of owning slaves in the american south also see leverage uh, in engaging with uh, kidnappers for exactly the reason Eric, Eric just gave, right? That um, if you can be seen to be acting against kidnappers as a Southern slaveholder, as a Southern uh, political office holder, as a Southern attorney general, um, then what you're really doing, of course, is insulating the legal domestic slave trade from accusations that it is the same as kidnapping, that uh, at least we're not kidnappers, right? We only deal in legally purchased enslaved people that we bought legally in Maryland, legally transported across the country to Mississippi. Kidnapping and slave trading are not the same. Let me assure you, everyone, I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice there, because, I, you know, we, we all, I think all of us would recognize that slavery is man-stealing. Slavery is fundamentally kidnapping, and everything else is just dressing. Right. Uh, on top of it, right? So this is what anti-slavery activists and free black people and enslaved people all intuitively understand, uh, but they have to push back against a lot of um, PR, again, for lack of a better word, uh, put out by um, slave owners and their boosters to try to uh, inoculate the um, uh, and defend the legal slave trade on which their livelihoods often depend. So, you know, what does it uh, look like today? Uh, I mean, there's cause for both pessimism and optimism, of course, as there is at any point in American uh, history. And the pessimism, of course, is to realize that the racialized crisis that we've lived through these past two summers most obviously are not isolated uh, events and incidents. They didn't pop out of nowhere randomly. They're deeply connected to a train of you know, a racialized thinking and racialized abuses, which have been going back to 1619 and beforehand, right? And I have a British accent, and uh, Britain and its empire are deeply complicit in everything involved um, in slavery and in the slave trade and its prosecution uh, over that period. Um, but in America, of course, we saw, you know, tools of racial oppression, uh, you know, perfected uh, almost um, in the period before the Civil War. Uh, and racism and white supremacy did not suddenly vanish because Lincoln signed a document in 1863 called the Emancipation Proclamation or the 15th Amendment later on after Lincoln's dead. Um, so, you know, we can, I think too often, um, those of us without sufficient historical context I think pat ourselves on the back in this country of ours that we uh, abolished slavery and therefore we've been the good guys ever since, which I think is a pretty superficial reading of American history. When you look at Jim Crow, when you look at um, segregation, separate but equal, um, with everything that provoked the civil rights campaigns of the 1950s and 19. 
um, 60s. They're not doing it for fun. They're doing it for their survival, right, That's in right. the 1950s and 1960s and onwards still. If we look at the war on drugs, if we look at mass incarceration, um, these are different manifestations of the same root um, you know, beliefs and attitudes about white, uh, white superiority, uh, right, and uh, African-American um, 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 subjugation. So I, I'm always interested in getting my students to draw those connections between the way we live now and the, and the way we were, and to see that, um, you know, America is the product of American um, history. Uh, so these problems are deeply entrenched, I guess, which is, I guess is what the pessimist in me, in me would want to constantly remind people. The optimist in me says that um, Americans of one stripe or another have always marshaled, uh, oftentimes in very small, modest numbers, um, against these uh, overwhelming injustices and um, rallied to try to bring as many other Americans with them on a campaign to make this a more perfect um, union. And I think that we could point to various victories and accomplishments and milestones, none of which are perfect or complete, uh, but all of which are a marker, that, a reminder that there are loads of good people um, in this country um, who, when they learn about injustice, engage with those um, issues. And we've seen that most visibly in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, which is an enormously important event in American um, history. And I want to say one, one more quick thing, and I have apologies for, for rambling on here, Mark, um, that while the fight against racial injustice is continuing, so too actually is the fight against slavery and human trafficking. It's not racialized in quite the same way um, since 1865, but slavery and human trafficking continue apace um, today, there are more slaves in the world today in 2020 than there were in 1850. Slave, slaves are much cheaper to buy um, in, eight, in 2020 than they were ever in 1850. This is all illegal. It's all black market, and yet it goes on um, under our noses. So I'm so glad that there are heroes around the world in groups like um, Free the Slaves, Anti-Slavery International, Polaris, which are mounting their own modern anti-slavery campaigns. And the least we could do is visit their websites and learn more about this issue and donate to them regularly and get involved and go to a meeting, right? We all like to think that if we were alive in the pre-Civil War period, we'd be one of the abolitionists. I think we all tell ourselves that. Well, we've got a choice to make, right? Every day we get up in 2020, right? Which side of history do we want to be on? Uh, what, at, what actions are we taking as regards racial injustice? What actions are we taking regarding modern day human trafficking and slavery? So there's always a choice to be made. I, I understand much more deeply now after reading your book that once the Atlantic slave trade was stopped, remind me the year. 1808. 1808. Then that only accelerated slave trade within the country. I mean, that makes perfect sense, but I, I, I don't think I had quite understood that. And now I was like, oh, of course. It only just made it, you know. <laughs> it opened up the market because the Deep South wanted slaves. Where were they, where were they going to get them? That's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think most of, I teach undergraduates at the University of Maryland and to them, 1808 is a date with no meaning. They've never heard that date before. It doesn't, it doesn't ring a bell with them. Uh, but among historians, I think it's a pretty well-known um, date, but it's not the transformative date like, you know, 1865, the end of the Civil War, 13th Amendment or 1863, yeah. Emancipation Proclamation, right? Because it didn't the ending of legal importations of black people from overseas for the purposes of enslaving them in America did not bring slavery to an end in America in 1808, right? Slavery doesn't die in 1809, in 1810. In fact, as we just remarked, slavery in the United States will grow wow. and thrive. The number of enslaved people um, on the eve of the Civil War in 1860 is far greater 
than the number of enslaved people in the Union in 1808, when the um, when America refuses to no longer legally participate in transatlantic slavery. They're still smuggling, by the way, afterwards. There's all this kidnapping of free people that I describe within the United States in Stolen. But mostly the driver of growth, of course, is natural reproduction. It's uh, enslaved women having kids. And one of the most evil things about slavery, and it's, it's hard to choose, uh, is the fact that it's hereditary. It passes through the mother's womb, right? Any child born to an enslaved mother is, by definition, uh, enslaved. So slavery grows and thrives as a result of that. The, uh, the siphoning off of um, legal imports is not even remotely sufficient to put a dent in slavery's growth over the next 50 years. Particularly as the, uh, what, what was it called, Manifest Des Destiny, as, as the uh, pioneers and uh, the people uh, taking hold of the, the United States, of course, there were people already here, but as they moved west and, and expanded their land uh, grab, if you will. Yeah, there certainly were people here, of course, right? Massive numbers of Native Americans who are forcibly removed, um, put on reservations, ethnically cleansed uh, by various uh, presidential and state-level administrations. But Andrew Jackson is the poster boy yes. for eth ethnic cleansing and uh, um, campaigns against Native Americans. And it's, a, it's an abomination he is on our money and in our banknotes and in our wallets um, every day when right. you could put Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or any number of 100 uh, more worthy Americans uh, on the banknotes we carry around in our pockets uh, every Amen. day. Um, that's a hobby horse. But yes, absolutely right. One other context here is the context Mark raised, which is that the amount of U.S. territory, um, which is being turned over to cash crop agriculture, is dramatically expanding over exactly the same period, which is to say in the most uh, fertile regions in the Deep South, uh, where they've understood that cotton can grow and thrive and that cotton can be immensely profitable, um, they decide that, um, uh, you know, white uh, uh, farmers and settlers decide that they're not going to pick on themselves. They're going to enslave um, African-Americans to do so. So they need to acquire more and more African-Americans. So they engage in smuggling. They engage in kidnapping of free black people. And of course, they're willing to buy often at ra rapidly, increasing price, rapidly increasing prices enslaved people already in the United States on plantations in Ericanized neck of the woods in Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, um, who uh, plantation owners might be willing to sell some of their enslaved workers if they can get a significant profit from them and have a legal slave trader legally transport them, an enslaved person from Maryland to Mississippi. This is called the domestic slave trade. It's sadly not as well known as the transatlantic slave trade, but it right. should be. It was right. massive. Uh, we're talking more than a million people forcibly transported, wholly legally, from our region down to the deep um, uh, south. Um, my late great colleague at the University of Maryland, Professor Ira Berlin, um, dubbed that migration the second middle passage to remind people that the domestic slave trade is of a similar scale to the transatlantic um, slave trade and ruins um, uh, uh, lives and destroys black families in the same ways that the transatlantic slave trade did, or to fuel the sort of growth um, and manifest destiny of the United States that Mark was referring to. Fascinating. So one of the things is uh, fascinating to me are cultural differences between countries. Um, I'm curious how your book is your book your story is being received in in the uk uh versus uh in the united states 
Yeah, so I, I have limited data on that because despite this British accent, I no longer live there. Um, my family definitely do, and we've been in close contact, but uh, my family can only buy so many copies, if you see what I mean. Um, so I was on a podcast um, uh, in the UK recently with the um, great uh, 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 writer and cultural commentator Mark uh, Hayward. Uh, the podcast is called Behind the Spine. It's about the craft of um, uh, writing. Um, and, you know, it was interesting to see that he's, you know, a clever, um, well-read guy. It was interesting to sort of figure out that as a non-American, someone who didn't live and breathe U.S. history and culture all the time, that there were things he knew about American history and things he didn't know about American history in the same way that if you and I were asked about French history, there'd be very there'd be things we know and things we definitely didn't um, know, at least that's true for me. Um, so uh, it's hard to know how this fits into pre-existing knowledge uh, outside of the United States. Uh, we've already said that I think for many Americans in the United States, some of this comes as a revelation. Um, so I think that's even more so for people beyond the United um, uh, States. But it, it is a more general point, Mark. Um, Britain has only recently uh, started to confront its own role and complicity and responsibility for um, the terrible things that came along with what's known as the British Empire, right? And the transatlantic slave trade is a massive part of that um, uh, legacy. Um, you know, racial injustice, exclusion of white supremacy are another massive part and related part um, of that uh, legacy. But when I was in school in Britain in the 1980s, we didn't study the British Empire because we knew it was a bit embarrassing, but we couldn't really say why. And now I hope, 20 years later, um, if my children were growing up in school over there now, I think they probably would study the slave trade and they would study Britain's role in the slave trade, which is to say they're starting to face this difficult past. And it's hard work, right? No one likes to be told that the country they're so proud of um, has so much blood on its hands. Right. Um, so it's often easier just to think about when uh, uh, times when there were unalloyed, unalloyed things to cheer about. So when I was in school, Mark, we studied a World War II all the time. Why? Because in you know in a British mindset, uh, we fought the Nazis and we won single-handedly. Good versus evil. No Americans or Russians involved, by the way. Um, good versus evil, right? We were the good guys. So the British Empire is a much more conflicted um, uh, story. Uh, likewise, in America too, I get the sense that our students uh, in K-12 environments still do a lot with the civil rights era and Martin Luther King and what an important heroic figure he is, but we don't always perhaps figure out uh, why he has to devote his life to fighting for the most basic um, uh, civil rights, right? That's a story too, and it belongs alongside um, the civil rights victories of that era. Well, thank you for shining a light a on such an important subject in such a powerful, heartfelt and approachable way. Thanks very much. Yeah, the book is Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Uh, really uh, an important, such an important uh, piece of, of literature and history. And I'm so grateful it came into both of our worlds. And thank yeah. you for the all the work you did to make it happen. Thank you so much. This has been a labor of love. I think it's important. I really appreciate the platform to talk about this uh, important piece of American history you guys uh stay well and stay safe mark you you come up with great ideas for songs and you suggested oh freedom for this eighth episode which i think is a wonderful idea 
It's one of my favorite songs of all time, and I know you feel the same. You love that song, and I didn't know this song till I was working at a charter school in Washington D.C. You know, and I as a teacher, which uh, kind of shocks me now. But when, the first time I heard that song, I said, "What is that song?" And I heard the kids singing it, and you know, since then. Uh, I've sung it a lot. I've thought about it a lot and its meaning. Um, I sang it to my son, Leo, the day he was born, and I sang it to him like every day. Every night I would sing him that song. And when he was two years old, I got a recording of him singing that, singing O Freedom, which I'm going to play now, which we followed uh, on this recording by my group Jawbone who is Amakela and Greg Heelan with Matt Jones on the piano and we uh, we sang O Freedom and uh, we also then that same group um, Amakela and Greg and I Jawbone we sang it at Leo's Bar Mitzvah when he was t- 13 and uh, listening to it really made me think about the power of the song and the power of teaching our kids to uh not hate, to love, and also to think about the meaning of a song like that and where that song comes from.
that's a song I carry with me in my heart and the harmonies and the meaning and it just takes me back in time to emotionally to difficult times and it's a song that gives one strength maybe there's a civil war going on maybe there's a family war going on maybe there's a, a breakup a divorce someone got shot someone died it's just it's it's a centering song a song for somebody to get back to one's grounding with the earth and to oneself one's deepest elements that's beautiful it's beautiful it strikes me you know i'd love to know where the song came from where it uh i mean i know where it comes from and that's what's so powerful about it it is definitely comes out of uh, uh years and years and years of suffering a lot of suffering and refusal to suffer anymore it's almost like it carries uh it, it carries that emotion through the years it um, somehow carries hope and sadness at the same time for right, me right right it's a song baked and born in suffering Okay, so when the word frivolous is used to describe what Mr. Peach is doing, is that also part of the prank? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like no frivols. You, you, you know, like um, at a party, you have the, and, and the frivols. Do you ever I get the those. frivols? Yeah, yeah, with beer. Yeah. Oh, my God. I like the little nose quiver sensation. Onion Actually, flavor. I kind of like that. Especially cold beer. Cold beer and warm frivols. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's like the perfect. It's almost like the snake going back to its tail. Yes. And um, dialing collect. <laughs> Does it stick its tail through the frivols? Oh kind of like eating Cheerios off your finger or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, if you have like really small fingers, you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Go finger. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, once the steak starts eating the Cheerios, it's all, I think all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my God. That's absolutely crunchy. Mm, um, like Vermont yeah. crunchy, like, like uh, hacky sack crunchy. Yes. Yes. The, the problem with Vermont is that we've all left. We've gone to a different state. Like you look around the governor God bless the governor, but the governor has so many stringent measures about this COVID, uh, which is correct. I'm sorry, He's what? doing the, what? the right thing, but there's no one here because everyone's gone to South Dakota okay. because everyone wants to party. <laughs> and that South Dakota is definitely the place to party. I oh mean, my if gosh! You're, if yeah. you're looking for pull a party, pull up your Harley and let's stir just. I mean, man, why do, do you it. think they have four senators in the Dakotas? It's a party town. It's a, as in by town, I mean two states. Could you write that down and email it to me? I'm going to need to study that a bit. Um, it's a little bit like the snake. What is that metaphor of the snake sort of going around to itself? It's like a creature that eats 
itself. Is that what's happening in America? Hmm. Um, by America, do you mean uh, a certain party or just, I don't, I don't mean the party that's in the Dakotas. I mean like a, 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 a political party or do you, are you saying the entire kit and caboodle? All I'm saying is that Rudy Giuliani, there's no way that that's Rudy. <laughs> I'll come back to that, will you? <laughs> I, I'm that, starting to suspect that's, this that's is actually not about Rudy to. or Peach, and it's all about you. Do you know the Beatles sang about this? They foreshadowed it. You know the song that goes, get back, get back, get back to where you once. That's what they're talking about. <laughs> Getting back to the discussion about Rudy Giuliani being actually Mr. Peach, because no former New York City mayor in their right mind would have done those five pillars of Zen. You got to be careful singing that Beatles song just like willy nilly. You know, YouTube's going to like put a strike on you for copyright infringement before uh, before Mr. Peach can get to you with the, uh, you know, with the with the fuzz. Well, the, the, speaking of the fuzz, tell me if this is right or wrong. Um, well, is it? Wrong. Okay. Well, then I can continue. Good. So Mr. Peach recently bought up some huge corporations, mm. um, the biggest in the world. Oh. And um, and then he started, I don't know, doing whatever you do when you have all these corporations. Well, it turns out that they're now breaking up Mr. Peach into different oh, pies. No. Oh no. Peach pies. Oh. One is called WhatsApp. Another is called Little Eensy Weensy Mark Zucker wee Weenie. <laughs> and the other is called Insta. Insta. Yeah. It weighs a gram. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a lot. No, it's not a lot. And, and and the thing is, it all has to do with power because Mr. Peach in doing his prank is really showing that he's, he's giving the finger to power out there because he's thinking, there's all these sad things, but I'm still going to have a good time and I'm going to show power that, um, that I'm not going to be bowled over by it. He's Bold. not shaking in his, in his boots. Um yeah, he's just farting in on in the in the courthouse in the in the uh in front of Jenna. Oh my Hills. gosh, I can't believe I forgot that one. That was one of the five nah, six pillars of Zen. <laughs> farting in the courthouse. Farting in the courthouse. <laughs> with, with it wasn't Rudy. a court actually. I, I I strike strike that. It was Strike that, the, Your Honor. In the in the what was it in the Capitol building? Is that one of the pillars of Zen? Is the fart in the isn't that why they, the they got these capital? big domes so you, you, you can sort of walk around and not like pass out? <laughs> that is why they build those big domes. And they've got the little nozzle way at the top of the dome, the sort of the nipple, if you will. And if you so spin that it? around counterclockwise, my friend, <laughs> then everybody can continue their conversation. Does the nozzle like open and yes, shut? Yes, it does. Yeah. Really? Just like in Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good thing we've got Mitch McConnell to kind of hold everything together and right. provide a, a moral framework for our nation. <laughs> <laughs> mm.